Happy Sabbath, church family. I am so excited to be here this morning. My wife sends her greetings and apologizes for not being able to be here. Unfortunately, healthcare sometimes makes you have to commit some of your Sabbath time, um, but I'll be praying for her that she'll be able to be a blessing to her patients today. So how, how are you guys doing this morning? I, I feel like I haven't been here in a, quite a while, so I'm really happy to be given the opportunity to share a little bit from God's Word. What I'm going to be sharing today is something that has really been speaking to my heart, and I, I hope and I pray that it will be something that will also speak to yours as well. So before we begin, um, if you don't mind, just join me in bowing your heads as we ask for God's Spirit to guide our mind. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath morning, the opportunity to be able to worship you um, here, to hear from your word, to praise your name, to sing songs to you, Father, to give you the gift of our finances, our service. I just want to ask that you would please uh, humble us right now, that our minds would be cleared from distraction, from worry, and that you would just be able to guide our thoughts and our feelings, Father, as we read your word, Father. May it be you that is glorified, and may your message uh, be made clear in our hearts. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so something that I, I have been thinking about recently is the concept of waiting in the Christian's life. And as you may know from your personal experience, sometimes in life there are these these things that cause you to have to wait in uncertainty without knowing what's to come, without knowing what the answer is to your prayer. And I'm sure we've all been through moments like that. We pray to God. There's this concern that leads us to fall on our knees and plead with God and ask for his intervention. And then it seems like his response is just a like, hey, wait and just wait a little longer and wait a little longer. And at least for myself, I've found that a lot of those times can be very challenging they can be some of those moments where our faith is tried the most. There are moments when our, maybe our prayer life feels the most agonizing, the most uh, pleading at times. And if we look back on Scripture, there's so many instances where we see that God's people have these periods of testing where they seem to have to wait for periods of time that are sometimes uncomfortable. Can you guys think of, or, uh, give me an example of a time or a, a, a person in scripture that had to wait for a long time? Moses had to wait how much? How long? 40 years before, after he was called to deliver God's people, right? And that is a time in which I'm sure a lot of his own plans, a lot of his own expectations of what should have happened were being broken down and thrown on the side. Any other instances of waiting in scripture joseph how when did he have to wait he had he had multiple moments for example he he's called to to make a difference in egypt and he has to wait in, in jail you know for a long time and god is giving him these these different manifestations but it just seems like things are going wrong and, and wrong and wrong and then suddenly he's brought forth to be a blessing to the whole world of, of that time right one more instance of waiting in Scripture. Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham and Sarah that they, their seed was going to be greater than the sand of the sea and that 
It was going to be a blessing to the whole world. It was going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And yet it seems like everything that he faces, everything that is transpiring in his life, seems to indicate that that is not realistic, that that is not possible. And so I could ask you by raising of hands, how many of you have had moments where you feel like God had you waiting for an answer? How many of you? And I'm sure we could all share testimonies and stories of, of moments where, where God came through for us and then even stories of where we're still waiting for his hand to intervene, for his, his presence to be felt in a particular instance. So my, the topic that I want to address today is that concept of waiting. What does it look like for a Christian? What is God's purpose in those times of waiting? And what can we do to make that waiting period be actually a period of peace, of joy, and of God's blessing in our lives. So let's go to the scriptures, and I'm going to be primarily talking about a very interesting passage in John chapter 4. John is probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's so fascinating how he traces the story of God, of Jesus' life here on earth in a very beautiful way. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And as we read for the scripture reading is John chapter 4, um, starting with verse 46. But before we read any scripture, I, I, I like to be able to set a setting for what we're talking about, okay? So let's go back a little bit. If you have your Bibles, um, turn over a couple of pages. And in John chapter 2, let's go to John chapter 2. What happens in the very beginning of John chapter 2? Can somebody tell me? The nice thing is, okay, the, Jesus turns the water into wine. Where in the country of Israel does this miracle occur? Cana of Galilee. Very good. So Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. What is the significance of this miracle? Why, what makes this miracle unique? It's the first miracle that Jesus performs in his public ministry that is recorded. Very good. After this fascinating story, this fascinating miracle, this sign that kind of gives impetus to Jesus' ministry at the very beginning. What is the very next story? Starting in verse 13 of John chapter 2. Passover, right? So this is a period of time in which all of these Jewish people are, 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 are making this pilgrimage, so to say, to Jerusalem where they celebrate the festival of Passover. Where is Jesus at this time? What does he do that is interesting and unique at this particular Passover? He cleanses the temple. So in this Passover, Jesus does something that definitely, you know, creates a stir in the community. And, and his name is being spoken about. What does he do? He casts out all of the, the vendors and all the distractions and all the commerce from God's house. And he says this beautiful phrase, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a, a house of merchandise. And interestingly, you know, sometimes we can read the story and we, we think, okay, you know, this was a really interesting event, but this isn't just something that occurs in a book or in our heads. This was an actual event in history that created a stir. Can you imagine, you know, people from all over the country in this city, in this town, and they see this thing that has never happened before. They see a man that is finally standing up for what they in their hearts know is wrong, 
and does something about it, and is pointing them back to the worship of the true creator, you can imagine that it would create an impression on the hearts of the people there present and worshiping, right? And we're going to be seeing that, that that effect, the effect of that moment actually had significant ramifications in what is to happen a little bit later on in Jesus' ministry. So Jesus cleanses the temple, and he, he after that, you know, immediately after, there's a man who was impacted by that, and he seeks Jesus. Who is he? He's a, a man who is at the Passover, who's a very well-known man in Jerusalem, Nicodemus, right? So Jesus unsettles the temple. He kicks away all this, these distractions. He's be, beginning to create this conversation, this stir of what's going on. Immediately after Nicodemus, he feels something in his heart. He's searching for something in his heart, and so he goes after Jesus at night, not wanting to be seen by the rest of the community. He finds Jesus, an amazing encounter with so many lessons for us, right? After that, Jesus is about to make his way to a different part. He's about to leave Jerusalem. And where is he going to go? In John chapter 4, he's on his way to a different part of the country. And what happens in John chapter 4? You can turn in your Bibles there and, and let me know what happens in John chapter 4. He's on his way somewhere. He meets the woman of the well, the Samaritan woman. Exactly. And this is an, another amazing encounter. So he's been in Jerusalem where the people of God are gathered together for worship. He's, he, he, he makes a statement of his allegiance to the worship of God. He encounters his man of prominence at night and, and, and invites him to start his life over again as a new baby in terms of, of, of his experience with God. And then he goes out into a people that have been outcasts to the people of God, right? The Samaritan people. He meets the woman at the well. What is the response of the Samaritans to the message of Jesus? That he has life eternal, water that will make them never thirst again. What is the response of the Samaritans to this message? They asked him to stay two more days. Exactly. Now, I want you to think about the things that Jesus did for the Samaritans. We're going to read a little bit, but if you think about in your memory or if you scan really quickly, what miracles did Jesus do to the Samaritans at this time? Can you think of any miracle that Jesus did for the Samaritans? No, nothing. Yeah, so he, he spoke to the woman and he was somebody who they knew could see into their hearts and can see the real wants, the real needs, the real struggles of the human condition, and he was able to address them with the word of God, with the hope of a better tomorrow. And that spoke to them. And let me look really quickly towards the end. Um, there's a verse that talks a little bit about the effect of this. There we go. John chapter 4. Verse 39, if you'll go there with me, John chapter 4, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of what? Of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did, is what she said. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we have and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So they are able to declare him the Messiah based 
on the words of Jesus' mouth, based on the effect of those words on their hearts and on the testimony of that woman. And it's a beautiful example of the power of pure, simple faith when exposed to the word of God. Okay? So Jesus, where is he coming from? This isn't a sermon, by the way. This is an interactive session. So Jesus is on his way somewhere, but where is he coming from? We just talked about it. He's in Samaria, but he's coming from somewhere. Jerusalem. What happened in Jerusalem? Passover. He makes this big stir. He makes this big commotion, right? He's going through um, on his way out of Jerusalem through Samaria. His word creates an impact on the people of Samaria. And then he's on his way somewhere. Where is he going? To Galilee. To Galilee. Very good. So he was in Galilee before, right? And what did he do before? He did a miracle in Cana. Very good. Okay, so he's going on his way to, to Galilee. Galilee, um, in the, the area he's going in particular, Cana is a, a more hilly, mountainous part of, the, of, the, of that territory. So he's going, making him, his way up. He's taking his time. Verse 43 says, Now after two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, and Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus is a little hesitant as he's making his way through Galilee. Why? Because he is from Galilee, right? So he's making his way. Verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So this thing that Jesus did, casting out the, the tables and the merchants in the temple, it has had an effect on his reception in Galilee, right? So the Samaritans, they receive him based on the word of the testimony of that woman. The Galileans receive him based on what? What he did in Jerusalem during Passover. But they're excited to see him. They're, they've heard so much about this guy. A lot of them were there to see it. They were there to experience it. They've spread the word. Everybody's curious about this new teacher, this new person who people are claiming is the Messiah. The Samaritans just declared him to be the Messiah. Okay, so we go on, and this is where we actually arrive at the topic that we're going to be spending a lot of our time today. And that is in verse 46. Jesus is going to where? Cana. So he was in Cana for the very beginning of his ministry. He goes to Jerusalem. He makes his, his way back through Samaria, and he's back where he started. Okay. So these people, the people of Cana, are people who have seen firsthand the very first sign, the very first miracle in the ministry of Jesus. So they have an advantage over most of us, or over most of the people there, right? But they're excited to receive him. And the, his wor the word of him has gone forth, you know, all in the surrounding region. And the reason we know that is, we, we start reading, So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water to wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Verse 47, When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So there's a couple of things that, that we want to be able to, to set the stage for. First of all, we know that this is a, an official. Um, he's a nobleman. 
um, a lot of commentaries and a lot of people kind of, uh, and also the spirit of prophecy comments that he was probably somebody who served in the court of Herod, the king. And so this is somebody who, who has influence, who has standing in society, right? He's somebody of importance. Now, is he from Cana? No, he's from Capernaum. Where is his son located? Capernaum, right? So he, he hears that Jesus is making his way to Cana, and so he decides to make this journey from Capernaum, which is in Galilee, to, Gal to Cana. Now, for this story, I feel like it's very important for us to have this mental picture of the story and the surroundings of what's taking place, right? So think of, think of, uh, of this land, make a picture for yourself, and imagine that Capernaum is this city that is close to this Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is 600, in this particular location, is 685 feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea, right? So this is a low part of the country. And now I mentioned earlier that Cana of Galilee is a hilly part of the country. So if you can imagine, this is a, a, a climb that you have to go up and into the hill country of Galilee, right? So he makes his way there. Now, a lot of people are, say or suggest that this journey distance-wise, was about 16 miles. Okay, so 16 miles is a very doable distance. I am sure some of us that have, at some point, have hiked a similar amount, or maybe spread out, you know, through a couple of days, but it's a doable amount of distance. If you're walking consistently, you know, not too fast, you could probably do it in about four or five hours. And if you're really hurrying, you could, you know, maybe even do it a little faster. Anyhow, so this is, this is, Still a significant journey that he has to make. And then you have to consider the fact that he's going, what? Uphill, right? So he makes his way there. And there is something about the story of Jesus. There's something about what he's been told that makes him believe that he is the man that has the answer to his problem. So would you say right now that this man has faith, yes or no? Yes, he has faith. He has faith because based on what he's heard about Jesus, the, his faith is big enough for him to leave his son, which we will find out is at the very edge of life and death. So he's, a, he's about to perish. He's exhausted all of his options. And he, his faith is big enough for him to be willing to leave his son at, in his deathbed and to go to seek out help of Jesus. So we, you know, when we talk about faith, a lot of times it's easy for us to maybe critique somebody's faith. But when, when we think about it and we, we read his story, we have to respect and admire the faith that he manifested in going to see Jesus, right? So he makes his way there. And verse 47, we read that he implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So there's something to be said about the importance of of the sincerity and the and just the, the strength of this man's plea to God. What, you know, it, it's logical to think about it. If your son is at the verge of death, if, there's, if you've done everything possible for his salvation, the physicians have tried everything, all of human resources at his disposal, and nothing has worked for him, you can imagine that that would create in him an intensity that would be willing to literally do anything, right? And so this is what drives this man's plea. This is what drives this man's faith in coming before Jesus. 
Now, this man has never met Jesus before. Desire of Ages, um, page 197, paints an interesting picture of this man's encounter with Jesus. It says, his faith, this man's faith, faltered when he saw only a plainly dressed man, dusty and worn with travel. He doubted that this person could do what he had come to ask of him. Yet he secured an interview with Jesus, told his errand, and besought the Savior to accompany him to his home. So we've, we've just said that this man has faith, and we all agreed that he has faith. And yet he's also a human person with, with weaknesses, right? And you can imagine he's made this 16-mile journey going up a hill. I'm sure he's going as fast as he can because he knows that his son has but little time. And he, what he encounters is this man dressed simply, covered in dust, seemingly nothing special about his appearance. It doesn't command the type of respect and honor that he's used to ascribing to maybe the, the, the rabbis and the teachers and the healers of his time. And his confidence in the human person that he's seen, his confidence in the humanity of Jesus is very low at this point. He begins to doubt that maybe, you know, this journey, was it really worth it? Did I waste my time in coming to this man? And yet he doesn't allow that to linger for too long. And he says, you know, I'm sure he, he thought to himself, I've come this far, like, I, it, it, I might as well try. And he goes ahead and he still pleads for the life of his son. And I want you to continue building the story, not just the facts of it, but I want you to imagine in your heart the emotion that this man is going through, the anticipation as he's walking up the hill and into the city, the disappointment at seeing some, you know, a man other than what he expected, and yet the urgency that his need creates in him seeking after Jesus. I want you to imagine that, and I want you to put yourself in his place as he's going through this process. So in verse 47, we find that this man is literally at the point of death. He has no other human options. He has nothing else to turn to. And so that drives his need. Nevertheless, I'm going to keep reading a little bit more from Desire of Ages, page 198. He knew, it says, speaking of the man, Sorry, Jesus, Jesus knowing of the man, Jesus knew also that the Father had in his own mind made conditions concerning his belief in Jesus. Unless his petition should be granted, he would not receive him as the Messiah. And I'm going to read that one more time. Jesus knew that the Father had in his own mind made conditions concerning his belief in Jesus. Unless his petition should be granted, he would not receive him as the Messiah. Think about this. This is a man who has left his son at the point of death. We have no doubt in our hearts about the intensity of his feelings at this time. He has made a 16-mile journey as fast as he's able to make it the moment he heard that Jesus was going to be in Cana. And he seeks and he pleads for the life of his son. And yet in his mind, in his heart, pleading with all the faith that he has, in his heart, he is placing a condition on his belief in Jesus as the Messiah. 
So he wants to believe that he's a Messiah, but he is waiting until he sees a response. He sees a result of his pleading for them, for, for then to him have made a conclusion on his belief of Jesus as a Messiah. And when we, when, when we read something like this in Desire of Eight, it's like, oh man, like how could he have made such a condition? How, how could he say, like, I'm not sure you're the Messiah unless I see you heal my son? It sounds a little bit absurd when we think of it from this stance, from this viewpoint. But if you imagine yourself right now being the father of, of this boy, seeing this man dressed in old, worn clothing, covered in dust, one of the most humble men I'm sure you've seen in a while, and yet you're placing literally your future in the hands of this person. You've, you've exhausted every other option. You, the intensity of, of what you're feeling at this time is, is, is beyond comparison. I'm sure he felt anguish. He felt despair. He felt frustration in, in, in some moments. And he comes before Jesus, and I'm sure he's thinking to himself, I want to believe that this man is able to heal my son. I'm sure he wanted to believe. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone ahead and asked. He wanted to believe that Jesus would carry this through. And yet Jesus is able to see deeper in his heart, and he's able to know that even in the moment of crisis, even in the moment where the life of his very son is at stake, the human nature, the thing that inside of us is still looking for proof, still looking for evidence before we're able to commit our mind and soul to the belief that Jesus is a savior, that he cares for us, that he's going to save us, and then he has a future for you and me. Now, if this man with his son at the verge of death, still had a lingering doubt in his heart, how much more doubt do you think you and I have today, right now, when we're not faced with imminent death of ourselves or a family member? And then we wonder, why is it that our faith doesn't accomplish more? Why is it that God doesn't respond sooner? Why is it that sometimes we feel like he's not there when we need him? Could it be possible, could it be possible that sometimes our faith in him is met with a condition of him responding before we allow our hearts to trust him? Could it be possible that our trust first necessitates an answer before we allow God to have our whole hearts, to have our whole, our whole minds? I think it is. This man was a good man. He was human like all of us. He was brought to the verge of, of, of what human ability was able to do, and it was still not, not, not enough. He was brought to the point where himself as a father, he had nothing else that he could do for his son. The gravity of his situation led him to Jesus with all the faith that he could muster, and still in that moment, he had doubt. And I'm sure in his mind, Jesus couldn't help but compare this experience with the experience that he had with the Samaritans, a people that had been outcasts from years and years before, people who were accustomed to being last, accustomed to being ridiculed, to being put aside. And I wonder maybe if those experiences made them more willing to cast their lot with this humble, dusty preacher that came by on the road. They were more willing to believe 
and somebody who didn't have all the flashiness of a professional rabbi or a professional healer. But they saw that he looked into their hearts and they, they, he saw their true condition and they were willing to cast their lots with him. But unfortunately, the, the nobleman planned to believe if he could first see. But Jesus required him to believe before he should see. And the fact is, he's just like the rest of us. Desire of Ages keeps on saying, this courtier or courtier represented many of his nation. And I'm going to change that a little bit and say this courtier represents many of us today. They were interested in Jesus from a selfish motive, with selfish motives. They hoped to receive some special benefit through his power. And they staked their faith on the granting of this temporal power. I, I am guilty of this, brothers and sisters. Sometimes staking my faith in receiving some benefit from God, from Jesus in my life. And this is not something that is unique to us, unique to this man. It's also, it was also the situation of the disciples. If you'd go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 17. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. This is another moment in Scripture where where the disciples are, are required to express and manifest faith in Jesus. And they find themselves a little disappointed. This is a story where, verse 14 of chapter 17, Matthew, a boy is brought before Jesus. He seems to have this, this seizure disorder or this, this, this demonic manifestation in his life, and he's brought for healing. And... The man pleads, and what, what does the man say in verse 16? So I brought him to your disciples, but what? They could not cure him. And what is Jesus' response? He said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why? Could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, the thing with the disciples in this instance is they were just like the man going to Jesus. When they tried exercising their faith for the benefit of this boy, that exercise of faith was actually for the benefit of their own self-approval and their own confidence. So they were basing their identity in connection to Christ on what results they were able to get based on faith. So I, I need to unpack this a little bit, but a little bit before this time, Jesus had been dealing with some issues with the disciples wanting to to categorize themselves, to see who was important, who's going to be on his right hand, who's going to be on the left. This is something that the disciples are struggling with personally. They have this thing where they want to be validated by Jesus. They want their spiritual experience, the sacrifices that they've made for Jesus, this teacher that they've been following for all these years. They want those experiences validated. And the way they're, they're, they're choosing to validate the sacrifices that they've made, their spiritual, you know, 
experiences, the, the spiritual worth of themselves, the way they're trying to validate that is based on the results of their faith. And what does Jesus say? Oh, perverse generation, like, I'm, 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 it, it pains me to have to endure this as long as I have. Could it be that sometimes our faith in God, our faith in Him, is on a condition? So in the same manner, this nobleman that we see, we can go back to John chapter 4, this nobleman that we see, his, his faith was, like, uh, was on a condition of the results. And it's for that reason, you can imagine, Jesus, he looks into his heart and he's able to see deeper than any man has seen before. And he's able to realize that he is not able to give an immediate answer to the nobleman. What do you think would happen to this man's faith if Jesus immediately said, your son is healed, or I'm coming back with you. Like, we'll, we'll do it right now. Don't worry. I've done this before. What, what do you think that would have done to this man's faith? It would have probably validated it, yes. But it would have still been a faith validated based on visible results. And I, I, I believe, based on my own experience, that sometimes those kinds of, of boosts to your faith, those kinds of that, that kind of momentum tends to be short-lived. Now, he did, he did. I totally agree. And we'll, Amen. Amen. And see, this is, this is the point I'm trying to make. By all definitions, I cannot imagine myself manifesting more faith than this man. And yet, yet, when we see just from the scriptures, we see that when this man's faith is brought forth before Jesus, his faith is still found, found wanting. His faith was not enough. And the reason we know this is because of Jesus' response to this man's faith. And we need to read this. John chapter 4, verse 48. He has just, Jesus has just heard the appeal. It isn't just a request. It is a plea from this man, from his very, the, the deepest portion of his heart. It is a plea from this man to Jesus. And look at Jesus' response to this plea. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Jesus is criticizing the, the, the faith of a man who I, we all agree, I'm sure we agree, that his faith is amazing to do what he did. And yet Jesus is still finding fault in this man's faith. And the reason he's finding fault in this man's faith is because his faith has a condition. And conditions and faith are like poison in a human or, or a living being. They cannot coexist. They don't go well together. Faith has to exist 
without the influence of conditions. But never, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves. This, Jesus responds in this very unusual way. He doesn't say, yes, I'll heal your son. He doesn't say, no, I'll heal your son. And the reason for it is Jesus is able to look inside this man's soul and like so many other examples in scriptures, he is able to actually discern what the real need and the real plea of this man's heart is. What do you think the real need of this man was? Was it the, the, the temporal healing of his son? No. It wasn't the temporal healing of his son. It was the salvation of not just him, but his whole family, as we're about to see. So Jesus sees this man coming before him, and Jesus could do nothing for him until this man realized that his utter need and be willing to exercise unquestioning and unconditional faith. So Jesus needs something more from this man. So he gives this response, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And Ellen G. White, and I, I, I can feel this in my own heart when I read this story, Ellen G. White says that this man, when he heard these words, his heart, his mind, he, he, he felt that Jesus had, had basically seen to the very deepest portions of his mind, and Jesus was able to discern what his need was. And at that moment, he feels a need of Jesus like he has never felt before. He feels a willingness to surrender to Jesus like he has never felt before. If you notice, the request that this man made wasn't to heal my son right now. The request that he was making was to have Jesus come back with him 16 miles, right? And heal his son in Capernaum. But now at this point, this, these words from Jesus, they strike a chord with him. They create a sense of, of, of renewed faith, a faith that all of a sudden has no conditions. And so, what does the, the verse 49 say? The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. His pleading takes a different tone. The reason why we can say that it takes a different tone is because the, the Greek words used here are slightly different. Now he's talking. Before, he's, he's pleading to have his son healed. Now he's pleading for his child to be healed. And the, 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 the specific Greek word that is used there is little child. So he, he, now he's pleading from, from a place within him that is deeper than before. Because now he's not just pleading for the life of his son. He's pleading for the life of his little child. And we don't know how old this, this boy was. But regardless, he's seeing him as his treasured child. Somebody that he would be willing to give his life for. And it is at that moment that Jesus is able to see and know that his faith has taken root in this man's heart. And that it will have fruit as a result. And so Jesus is going to give a response that will require the man to give a response in return. So this is, this is an important lesson for us to remember. Faith, when we, when we exercise faith, it always requires a response. It always requires a reaching forth, grabbing hold of, and making our own. That is the process by which faith is able to accomplish something in a person's life. So what, it, what is this process? manifestation of faith that this man has to do now. What does Jesus say to him? The, the nobleman said, verse 49, 
Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. This is the point. This is the moment in which this man's faith, it has been touched by God's presence, by Jesus looking into his heart, discerning the truth of his heart. He sees that Jesus is able to know the true intent of what was going on. He repents of that intent. He pleads for the life of his son as only a father can. And then Jesus says, I am giving you another opportunity to exercise your faith. Go back. Your son is healed. He doesn't say anything else. He doesn't doesn't give any more assurances than that. Just the word of Jesus' mouth should be enough for this man. So now this man is faced with this option. He has to reach forth. He has to take hold of the words of Jesus, and he has a choice. He can either run with it, or he can just decide and say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Maybe he'll be sealed, maybe he won't. I might as well run back as fast as I can and see if anything happened. I don't know if it did, and all this doubt. And you can imagine that walk back, those 16 miles, must have been torture, torturous if that was the choice that he made. But he didn't. He made a good choice. What did he say? Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man what? believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. The man believed, and so he goes his way. He was not doubting. Now, this is something that just makes me marvel. How long, how long did I say was the distance between one place or the other? Between Cana and Capernaum? 16 miles. We know from scholars and from, from, even the Spirit of Prophecy mentioned this, but scholars mentioned this, that this, this encounter must have happened around the 1 p.m. hour, okay? So this happens around the middle of the day. He has plenty of time to go 16 miles and find out if God's word did what it said it was going to do. He has plenty of time to run back. He's going downhill now. He could do it in five hours if he wants to. But what does the story say? What does he do? What is his response to faith? What, what, what does that faith do in his life? Listen to this. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. 51. And as he was now going down, notice he's going downhill, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour where he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. What does this mean? This man, he encounters Jesus around 1 p.m. It says the seventh hour, okay? He starts making his way back. It is not until the next day that he's not even home. His servants also start to make the journey towards him, and they meet him along the way. This is a a man who left his son at the point of death, and he is literally taking his time on his way home. This is a man that is at peace. This is a man that is confident. This is a man who is experiencing a waiting period, a period of time in which he has to wait to see God's response, but he has no doubt. He has peace. He has freedom. He doesn't have the stress of wondering, is my son okay? Is my son not okay? Did Jesus come through for me or did he not? He is walking confident. He's walking happy. The moment he meets his servants, the thing that he wonders is just, At what time did it happen? He just wants to marvel. He wants to rejoice 
in the results of Jesus' work in his life. And it has an effect. We keep reading. He inquired as the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This man, he was required by Jesus to depart without evidence of the request that he had, that, that, without evidence that the request had been granted. His faith was put to the test. It was at this moment that he had to take hold of the gift, believing that he had received it, and go in peace. And I, man, I, I, it really speaks to my heart. I, I look at Desire of Ages. Also speaking about this time, page 199, it says, He who blessed the nobleman at Capernaum is just as desirous of blessing us. But like the afflicted father, we are often led to seek Jesus by the desire for some earthly good. And upon the granting of our request, we rest our confidence in his love. The Savior longs to give us a greater blessing than we ask. He longs, he longs to give us a greater blessing than we ask. Jesus wanted to give this man so much more than a healthy son. He wanted to give him a family that lived for the service of Jesus and of God. A family converted. A family that would be never the same. And yet he was able to see what the real need was. And he was able to put this man's faith to the test. This passage keeps reading. The Savior longs to give us a greater blessing than we ask, and he delays the answer to our request that he may show us the evil of our own hearts in our deep need of his grace. He desires us to renounce the selfishness that leads us to seek him. Confessing our helplessness and bitter need, we are to trust ourselves wholly to his love. Can you imagine that sometimes it is selfishness that leads us to Christ? Selfishness that leads us to Christ. And we, and we are faced with Christ. That faith is not enough for him. He requires us to repent, to be transformed, to realize that he looks into our hearts, he sees our motives, and he ex makes us experience these times of waiting where he wants us to be able to repent, turn around, and just trust him with everything that we are and everything that we can be. He delays the answer to our request that he may show us the evil of our own hearts. Like this man, many of us, I know, have faith. We have exercised faith in the past. And yet, I don't know about you, but I know myself. I frequently come to God with requests that are born out of my own selfishness, out of my own benefit. And it's not that God doesn't want to benefit you. It's just that he wants our faith in him to be pure, to be based not on, on what we can be if we get what God gives us, but rather on what God can do in our lives if we allow him to have full control, full reign over the results in the direction of our lives. This man walked home happy without seeing his son, without knowing how his son was doing. 
How many times can we say that our waiting periods are happy, blessed, peaceful? This summer for me was one that was full of these kinds of moments, particularly in terms of my education. It's probably the hardest year of medical school. I had to take boards. I had challenges with one of my classes. And there were a lot of moments where I had to come to God begging and then finding myself asking for selfish reasons. And then seeing God tell me, Alvin, I need you to do your work, to live your life regardless of what my, my answer to your request might be. I need you to live life regardless of whether my answer for you is yes or my answer for you is no. And that is something that I'm sure all of us face, whether you're in school, whether you're at work, whether you have challenges in your own life. We're all faced with moments where, where God is asking you and me, surrender this request, give it up, and be willing to walk in peace and in happiness and in trust regardless of whether the answer is yes or the answer is no. Because it is only at that point when you're willing to take hold of my faith and walk with it and go forward with it knowing that the result is sure and that God has my best interest in his mind and that he has my life and that I've surrendered everything to him. It is only in that moment that we can truly say that we are walking in his hands and in his footsteps. And it is only in that moment that he can then come and say, my child, my son, my daughter, I have something even better than you could have possibly imagined for you now. My answer for you now is better than the request that you made all those weeks, all those months ago, all those years ago. That's very true. I, I'm not. And we, and we all go to Jesus looking for what we can get. Yes. We don't go and look on Google. There is no, hey, Lord, give me something. Yes. Another comment here. Uh, yes, Alvin. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good question. Yeah, no, I, 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 the reason why I think your, answer, your question is a very legitimate question is because when I read those scriptures, when I see the story, when I read, not just this, this is not the only instance where a man was required to do something like this. I can find other instances where we are required to move forward as if the result is sure. The only, the only reason why I, I completely agree with the importance of your question is because as a human, that is the most difficult thing to do. Because, and then I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that part of it, it depends on what the definition of happiness is. Because I am sure that his heart didn't feel jubilant at the fact that his son had been suffering for all this time. And I'm sure that his heart did not naturally feel this, con this you know, willingness to sing and to praise God and to, to, to be happy in a sense. But 
if, I, if I'm honest with you, faith only exists in that moment in which the result is not sure. In that moment where we don't have a reason to be happy, and yet we are called, we are asked to live as it is so. If, if, as it, sorry, as if it is so. And for that reason, I do believe that the word is required. Because without that choice of allowing ourselves to move forward, regardless of what our, our heart feels, without that moment, I honestly don't see how God can work mighty things in our lives. Because if it's not that, then what is faith? Is faith simply that, that this, this thing where I come to God, I ask him, you know, and then I wait and see what happens. Or, or I, I request this big thing from him and I live in agony until the result comes. And honestly, I cannot believe and I cannot see that being faith in the scriptures. Faith has to have an effect first on our choice and then it will, by God's grace, have an effect on our emotions as we move forward. And that is, that, that is the thing that makes faith so in a way otherworldly and so different from every other religion. And I think we have to finish, but we'll, we can talk a little bit more. Yeah. I'm going to just finish with one short passage. When we come, this is, this is also from the Zarbatus, and I, I really encourage you. This, this topic has really spoken to me, but if you want this to, con, to, to kind of even be expanded some more, go read the Zyre of Ages, that ch the chapter on this topic. It says, when we come to him in faith, when we come to him in faith, the faith that we've been talking about right now, every petition enters the heart of God. When we have asked for his blessing, we should believe that we receive it. And thank him that we have received it. Then we are to go about our duties, assured that the blessing will be realized when we need it most. When we have learned this, we shall know that our prayers are answered. God will do for us exceeding abundantly according to his riches of glory and the working of his mighty power. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And so this passage, these scriptures to me, they tell me that true, true results in our life can only come as a result of faith that believes God, that takes him at his word. And I... I'm with you with saying this, is, this has been the biggest challenge that I've been faced with in, in exercising my Christian walk because everything in me worries. Everything in me wants to plan. Everything in me wants things to be assured. But it is for that reason that God gives me these moments of waiting where we are required to move forward with no evidence of results and still be happy, still praise him, and still be thankful for the journey, regardless of the outcome. Thank you for sharing this message with me, and I think we'll have a prayer. Thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, think that most of us have really uh, got a real message, and we understand. And we knew that you would be here. We believed, and we believed that you would finish. And you finished, and it was good. And uh, we will have you again. The reason that he ran overtime because he hasn't been here for a long time. Uh, but it was good. Uh, let us pray 
our Heavenly Father, Jesus did say, because I live, ye shall live also. Help us to believe the words of Jesus by doing Christ's will and not our own. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.